Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. And I'll go ahead and answer Ted's question. I can tell you what I look like on TV. I've seen it before. Ain't any better than what it looks right now, I can promise you. It ain't gonna... What a staff, I love them. You know, the Bible said Joseph worshiped leaning on his staff. I sure wish I could lean on mine. There we go. We're glad that you're here this morning. Thank you for coming, being with us on this Palm Sunday morning. We're so glad that you have come to join us today. Today is the day on our church calendar when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the last time prior to his crucifixion. It's Palm Sunday. We call it that because in the, during that time of his entrance down the road there, he was met by those who, who waved palm branches at him. Palm branches were the national symbol of the Jews and the Jewish people at that time. But you'll also remember this, this interesting piece of information. They were shouting to Jesus as he made his way down that road. And the shouts were this, Hail, King of the Jews. Palm Sunday is significant because it marks the beginning of what we refer to as Holy Week or, or Passion Week. And it's a week that hears those cries, Hail, King of the Jews, change. It changes to shouts of crucify him, crucify him. And the events of the final week of Jesus' life culminate with his brutal death on the cross that we celebrate on Good Friday. But then praise the Lord, we know that that's not the end of the story know that we will, Lord willing, gather together again next Sunday morning here on Easter Sunday morning for us to celebrate his resurrection from the dead. And that's what we celebrate on Easter. But before we get to Easter, we, we need to experience Palm Sunday. Specifically, we need to experience what Palm Sunday ushers in for us. As I've said, Palm Sunday helps us move toward the sacrificial death of Christ that we celebrate on Good Friday. And it is Christ's sacrificial death that I want us to spend some time considering together this morning. Particularly because as we are going to do that, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Over the years, it's become our practice here at Ivy Creek to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper on Palm Sunday morning. And to me, that just seems like a supremely appropriate time for us to do that. Celebration of the Lord's Supper is something that that believers do to remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ so that we might be saved. It's a, it's a meal, a sacred meal that is shared together by believers who have placed their faith in Christ. And it's an opportunity for us to focus our attention back on what Jesus did and bring to the forefront of our minds exactly what he accomplished on our behalf. Um, that's why we partake of the wafer or the bread that we will do here in just a moment uh, because it's intended to remind us of Jesus' physical body. It was broken for us. We will also drink from the cup and the cup will be filled for our purposes here, will be filled with, with grape juice and it's the color of the juice that's there to remind us of the blood that Jesus shed on our behalf so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And as we gather around the table, we do that to remind ourselves. And the reason that we do it to remind ourselves is, well, quite honestly, it's really easy for us to forget. 
we might not forget that Jesus actually died, but we might live our lives oftentimes with it kind of buried in the back of our thinking. Celebration of the Lord's Supper is a moment for us to bring that to the forefront of our thinking so that it might, it might actually direct the way that we live every day. We also take part in this meal, though, as a way of proclaiming the gospel, as a way of proclaiming the good news to all men, women, boys, and girls everywhere that though your sins may be as scarlet, Jesus washes them white as snow through his own blood. So we come together as a believing people in order to proclaim to those who observe what we do today and we also do it to motivate us as we leave here to proclaim that good news to others. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So on this Palm Sunday, before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, let's do exactly that. I want us to remind ourselves of the gospel that we should then also go out and proclaim to others. And how I want us to do that is by focusing on an Old Testament passage. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. One has called this passage from the Old Testament the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. Uh, Charles Spurgeon referred to Isaiah 53 as the Bible in miniature and the gospel in its essence. This chapter in Isaiah 53 is perhaps the most famous of all of Isaiah's prophecies. And it is quoted or alluded to and even in many respects reproduced in its entirety in various places throughout the New Testament. I wanted to spend some time considering what the prophet Isaiah wrote this morning, some 700 years, by the way, before Jesus Christ was crucified. Because in this passage, we get a very clear picture of who we are, we gain a clear picture of who our Lord Jesus Christ is, and we also get a very clear picture of his death and why it was so necessary on the cross. I will refer to other parts of the chapter. This morning, I simply want to read verses 4 through 7, which one has written is really the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Beginning in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, we hear these words. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this day and thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to be able to gather to this, into this place and to be able to sing the songs that we have sung this morning, reminding us of your great love. Now also we gather around this table that you have instituted for us to, to participate in so that we might remember the great sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
pray that you would help me to be very clear in the words that I speak this morning from your holy word, that it would find and lodge deeply within the hearts of all of us who are here. And then as we actually partake of this Lord's Supper, use this as a moment to drive deep within us the value of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the inestimable value and for all that you have done for us and that our only hope comes in you. I pray this, that you might be exalted and lifted up and that we might continue to be edified through this service. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. You'll notice I give, I've given you the outline in your bulletin there. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Sinful Straying Sheep Saved by the Suffering Silent Lamb. There's a lot of S's there. There's going to be a lot of S's in this sermon as we go along. What struck me, though, the reason why I chose that sermon title and what struck me as I studied this passage was the way in which Isaiah metaphorically, when he writes this, this prophecy, uses the same animal to refer both to us, to the people, but he also uses it to refer to the Lord himself. You'll notice in verse 6, he says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. But then in verse 7, he says, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What that tells us is that Isaiah makes a comparison between sinful humanity and he compares them to sheep. You would think that as he talks about the Lord Jesus, he might use a different animal in his comparison, but no, he still uses the sheep as a comparison to the Lord Jesus. And, and so it is those two comparisons between us and sheep and between the Lord and sheep that drives my thoughts this morning and the outline that I've given you there. And so I want you to notice the first outline, the first point on your outline. It's, it's pretty simple. It's the sinful sheep who stray. The sinful sheep who stray. And I want you to know who all that is. Notice how the first word of verse 6 starts out this way, or excuse me, it starts out all. Now, I had a professor in, in, in seminary who, who wanted to let me know exactly what all meant. And he said, all means all. It means everybody. It means there's no exceptions. There's mean nobody gets out from underneath that word all. All. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Notice, though, that, that Isaiah doesn't even exclude himself. That's why he uses the personal pronoun, we. All we. I'm included, he says. I'm part of this group. I'm one of these who are there. All we. And then here comes the comparison, like sheep. All people everywhere, he says, are like sheep. How? In what way are we, that includes you and I, how are we like sheep? In what way? Well, it says that we are like sheep and that we've all gone astray. What exactly does that mean? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I don't know a whole lot about sheep. Didn't grow up on a farm with sheep. Don't know a whole lot about sheep. I've read enough of my Bible, though, to know this about sheep. Sheep need a shepherd. You really don't come across sheep in the Bible without the fact that the Bible is also talking contextually about the need of a shepherd. And what does a shepherd provide that sheep? Well, it provides the sheep within the fold with, with protection. It helps them to be able to see dangers that they don't see. It helps them to, to, to keep them fed and watered. The shepherd is their provider, their protector. This is another thing, though, that I learned about sheep. Based upon Jesus' parable of the lost sheep in the New Testament, sheep tend to stray. 
They tend to leave the fold. They tend to walk away from the shepherd's protection and from the shepherd's care. Sheep a lot of times are interested in pretty much one thing, eating grass. Yeah, they're pretty much interested in eating grass. And, and when this little patch of grass right here, they kind of can see, they keep their head down, their head's not up looking at the shepherd, their head's down looking at the grass. And the next little tuft of grass looks better than the piece that they're eating, so they move. And so they continue to move. And one little step leads to a next step and to a next step. And the journey winds up taking them far away from the fold of the shepherd. Sheep tend to stray. Not only that, sheep tend to follow other sheep. I read a story this week about a sheep just like that one I just described. It was moving from one little tuft of grass to the next, not paying any attention to the dangers that were around it or to the landscape that was around it. And it got perilously close to the edge of a cliff, but it really wasn't paying attention. It was only looking at the next little tuft of green grass. And as it took the next step, its legs went out from underneath it. It toppled over the edge and went down the embankment to its death. The real tragedy of the story is that the other sheep behind it kept moving in the exact same direction, following it. And one after the next, after the next, tumbled over the ledge and went down to their death. Sheep tend to stray and they tend to stray because many times they're only interested in the things that are right in front of them. They're self-consumed. In the first service, someone else said they're dumb too. They are. Sheep, sheep can be very dumb animals. They, they're really self-consumed, dumb, silly, only interested in their own things and many times they will just follow blindly after another sheep. Now, here's the thing. What we might consider, that doesn't sound like it's such a terrible thing though, right? I mean, though the prophet Isaiah compares us to sheep in that we stray, it's really not such a horrible thing. I mean, sure, it can be dangerous at times. But in our culture, we tend to be fiercely independent. In our culture, we tend to value self-expression. And we might wonder why sheep turning to his own way is such a bad thing. Well, the context tells us that there's even much something much more sinister going on here. Something much more sinister than simply expressing our individuality. Our straying and turning to our own way ultimately lead, at the end of verse 6, to what we read there. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I promise you we'll come back to who the him is of that phrase is in just a moment. What I want to focus our attention on is the word iniquity. The word iniquity there in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 actually is a word that means sin. It means wrongdoing. It means, it means being bent in the wrong direction. And it carries with it the concept of guilt and, and punishment that necessarily accompanies sin. And Isaiah has already used this terminology. He used it back in verse 5 when he said, but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. Now, now, notice that Isaiah brings those two words together into a package. That couplet actually uses transgression and iniquities together. Iniquities, as I've already said, means being bent or twisted. In other words, I have an inward perversion that makes me inclined to do wrong. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that because we have been born into Adam's fallen race, because we have been born that way, all of us are fallen and all of us are born with a sin nature. In other words, you might think about it this way. We have a virus in our software that causes our hardware to malfunction. 
and it is the malfunction that is the transgressions that he describes here. A transgression is any time you step over the limit, any time that you are driving your car and you go faster than the speed limit says that you can, that, is, that truly is a transgression. You are exceeding the limits of the law. Anytime you go past where God has said not to go, that is a transgression. And it is fed from our iniquity. It is fed from the bent within us, the fallenness of our, who we are. And what, what the prophet says is when you take that into account, when you take iniquities and transgressions into account, you're faced with a picture that's not a flattering one. It's not positive, it's not encouraging. We're faced with a picture of us as sheep and our turning away from God, our, our straying away from Him is not just something that we can laugh at and go, oh, that's funny. No, it's iniquity, it is transgression. So we are sheep who are silly and we are self-absorbed and we are self-consumed and we are soul sick and we stray and we are sinful sheep. This is why Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 22, that Scripture has confined all of us under sin. Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means all, and that's all of us. And we find ourselves right there in Isaiah 53, verse 6. We are all like sheep who have gone astray. So that's the first picture. It's the first comparison that our text brings out to us this morning. We are sinful sheep who stray. But that leads us to the next picture and the next comparison to sheep that Isaiah paints for us. Notice the second point on your outline. It's this, the silent lamb who saves. The silent lamb who saves. Isaiah says in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The first thing that I want to do is I want to clarify who the he is. I promised you we would come back there. I want to clarify who he is. Because if we do not know who the he is of Isaiah 53, we will not understand this passage. We have to know who the he is. And there, therefore, it's very important. And it was very important, even you, you might be interested, that was the exact question that was being asked by a man who was on his road back to his home in a place called Ethiopia. In Acts chapter 8, there was a man who was the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was leaving, he had been to Jerusalem and he had worshiped there in the temple and he was going home and he had a copy of the scrolls. He had a copy of Isaiah. He had a copy of Isaiah 53 verse seven. He was reading this exact verse when he was on his way and a man named Philip who had been a deacon in the church but had also then turned into an evangelist and he had evangelized the area of Samaria and God brought him to this Ethiopian eunuch and he says, do you understand what it is you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And and by the way, the real question that I want to know about Isaiah 53 verse 7 is this. Who is the prophet speaking of here? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And it says there in Acts chapter 8 verse 35 that, that Philip got up into the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53 verse 7, he preached Christ to him. If you want to know who Isaiah 53 verse 7 and all of the chapter is about, it's about Jesus. It's about what he did. Now, I can only imagine that you're thinking, well, how is that possible? 
How is that possible that Isaiah could write with such specificity and such clarity and give such details with regard to what had happened to Jesus when you have already told me, Pastor, that he wrote this 700 years prior to the crucifixion of Christ? How could he do that? I would tell you and answer the question, I have no idea how he could do that were it not for the Holy Spirit of God who inspired him and who moved him along to write these very words. Do you see what we have? We have something here that was ultimately authored by God himself and was given to us for our benefit and for our understanding of why Jesus came and what he came to do. And so God himself revealed to Isaiah exactly what would happen to his son. And this tells us a little something about God. God had been doing that all along. From all the way back in the Garden of Eden when it discussed the, the crushed serpent's head, when it, when it talked about how Noah built the ark in order to save his family, when it talked about when Abraham went up on Mount Moriah to slay his son Isaac, at that moment, and even later when Moses struck the rock and it produced forth water in the wilderness, all the way to the sacrificial laws that were given by God for his people to, to obey in the Old Testament, every bit of that was God speaking to his people saying, I will provide for you a lamb who will ultimately take your sin away. It all points to Jesus. God had always been giving his, his understanding of his son to his people. And so we see that here and we understand that Jesus is the one who Isaiah speaks of. And under the direction of the Holy Spirit, what he says is that Jesus would be like a sheep, a sheep before his shearers, a sheep who was led to slaughter. He would open not his mouth. Now, we've already been told that we're like sheep and that we stray. And that was a supremely negative comment, by the way. It's a negative attribute of sheep that they stray. But here, our Lord is compared to a sheep in his silence, and it is a positive thing. How can it be positive? Well, understand what it doesn't mean for, for Christ to have been silent for the, for the one that, that Isaiah speaks of here to have been silent it doesn't mean that Jesus was weak his silence in, in the face of his slaughter does not mean that Jesus was puny it doesn't mean that he was scrawny it doesn't mean that he was frail in fact it communicates just the opposite the silence of Jesus compared to that of a lamb led to slaughter or a sheep before its shearers tells us that Jesus offered no resistance to what happened to him. He made no complaints with regard to the mission to which he came to accomplish. He had every reason to complain. If there was ever a man who walked the face of the earth who could have complained about the things that were done to him, Jesus Christ could. He was a man in whose mouth there was no guile. He was a man who never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He never deserved any of the treatment that he received. If there was ever one who could have complained, it could have been Jesus, and yet he was silent. He never protested. Why? Because in his silence, Jesus was demonstrating his submission to, of his hand to the will of the Father. He was demonstrating that he was willing to do whatever it was that his Father sent him to do. In John chapter 6, Jesus told his disciples, this I have come to do the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 4, he says, my bread, in other words, the very sustenance of my life is to do the will of the Father. 
You see, in that, in, in that respect, we see just how unlike Jesus we actually are. We've been described as sheep who stray. Jesus never strayed from the will of his Father. Never once. What was it that he submitted to? Well, let me point back to the, the verbs that we saw earlier. He bore griefs. He carried sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded. He was bruised. He endured beatings that resulted in stripes across his back. And it's really no wonder that Isaiah refers to him as the suffering servant. And in his silence, what he demonstrates is that he was willing to, and to submit to that suffering. But again, we might want to know why. Why would he do that? What would cause him to do that? What would, what would cause him to submit to such terrible atrocities? Why would he be known, as verse 3 says, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief? Well, let me point out the personal pronouns in what we read earlier. That actually answers the question. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Brothers and sisters, we dare not miss this critically important point of this passage. What the Lord Jesus endured on the cross, the rejection, the beating, the scoffing, the unimaginable pain, the affliction, the piercing, the ultimate death, all of that was for us. He is our substitute. He took our punishment upon himself so that we could be set free from it. He did not suffer for himself. He did not suffer for his own benefit. Rather, he suffered for us. He suffered in our place. He suffered for our advantage. Jesus died as our substitute. And therefore, as we contemplate these verses, what we realize is that Isaiah compares the silence of the one who would come as a lamb being led to slaughter and a sheep before its shearers because he wants to know that as the silent lamb, Jesus was submissive in his suffering. He was the substitutionary servant who has come to save those silly, self-absorbed, self-consumed soul sick straying sinful sheep like you and me here's where Isaiah's prophecy and the picture of those two different ones are clear the picture of who we are is clear the picture of who Christ is clear and the picture of why he died on the cross is clear he atoned for our sins he paid the debt that we incurred but could never pay he had he not done so, you and I would still stand under that debt. We would still stand condemned before holy God. But as Isaiah tells us, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we understand this text to show us about the sacrificial death of Christ. By his own sacrificial choice, he was punished in the place of sinners, thus satisfying the demands of justice so that God could justly forgive our sins. 
that is what we as believers celebrate this morning as we gather around this table. We remember what Christ did for us. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The Lord's Supper is for sinners who, though they have strayed like sheep, have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and been saved by his substitutionary atonement. And that's why we approach the table of the Lord with with solemnity. We, We approach it solemnly because we know what drove it. It was our sin that drove Christ to the cross. So we approach it with a very solemn understanding of why we are here. But we also approach it with celebration. It is celebratory. It's a celebratory meal because it reminds us that Jesus did for us what we could never do. He set us free from the penalty and the power of our sin. And so it is both solemn, but it is also celebratory. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if if you have confessed your sins and you have trusted in Jesus Christ to save you, then I invite you to this Lord's table this morning to remember his sacrifice and to confess your complete, total dependence upon him. If you have never trusted in Christ, if you have never repented of your sins, and confessed him as Lord, then I pray that you will let the explanation of God's holy word this morning become a proclamation to you of the good news that he offers. Allow those who are sitting next to you who will partake of this to be a a proclamation to you of the good news of the gospel and let it testify to you of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. In Luke's gospel, chapter 22, We read these words. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. This morning we come to this table to do exactly what his disciples did then, to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this time once again. I pray that you would help it to remind us of the only hope that we have, the hope that resides and rests firmly in Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I pray that that would be food for our bodies as we know that it, it is the greatest thing that could ever we could ever experience. Thank you for this time. We praise you in Christ's name.
just a moment. I'm going to pass out the cup, and I mentioned this in the first service, and this is a, a visual for me that I hope you will benefit from. Um, when you hold that cup in your hand, the juice is red. It's red for a reason. It's red to symbolize the blood of Christ. And it is the blood of Christ that is shed for us so that we might be saved from the penalty and the power of the sin in our lives. And so truly it is by the blood of Christ that we live. But as you hold that cup in your hand, you'll probably see ripples constantly beating across the, the top of the cup. And that will be caused by your pulse, which is your heart beating. And so in many respects, that pulse, your beating of your heart, represents your physical life, but it should remind you that your spiritual life is wrapped up in the blood of Christ and that God in his love for you brings those two things together. He gives you life, but life more abundant through, through the sacrifice of his son. So make sure you take a few moments when you hold that cup in your hand and you watch the ripples you remember that it was Jesus' blood that was shed for you. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us. We thank you by his blood we have been saved. Pray that you would continue to make that known to all everywhere that though their, skin, their sins be as scarlet, they can be washed white as snow by the blood of Christ. We thank you for that. Remember it this morning in Christ's name.
remission of sins. So we're like sheep. Don't ever forget that. Silly, soul sick, self-absorbed, sinful, straying sheep. That's who we are. We will never get anywhere by trying to separate ourselves from who we truly are. That's who we are. We come to this place to worship the Lamb of God. The one who by his blood saves us. The one who by his sacrifice redeems us. We've sung about him this morning. We've we've read about him. We've experienced him through the table. And now we're going to conclude by singing about him yet again. A song that declares he is holy. So this morning, that's how we're going to conclude our service. It's going to serve a couple of purposes. It's going to be an opportunity for you to stand and declare your allegiance to declare who it is that you belong. But I want you to know that Pastor Dave, Pastor Ted, myself, we're going to be up here. These deacons are going to be here. You may have a need in your life that you want someone to pray with you about. We will be here to pray for you and with you. You may have come through this day and realized this has proclaimed to me that Jesus is the only way and I have lived my life on my own terms and today is the day that I want to I want to correct that. I want to correct it by placing my faith in Christ. We'll be here to talk with you. We'll be glad to stay later and talk with you after this service is over. I don't know exactly where everyone in this room is. I do know this. As we stand together, I want you to sing, and I want you to move as the Holy Spirit moves in your heart. Let's stand together.